and welcome to Bloke and the Bird Show. One more week. <laughs> One <laughs> more week. Hopefully, this latest stretch of clickbaity headlines to get any kind of stories out there is about to end. And next week, we can start to build up for spa, and we can have something again. Well... We are literally one week away from spa. Yes. Which means by about Tuesday, every factory should start waking back up again. Well, and Monday, they should be actually... I would think this week, they're probably already started the shipping process because everything's got to be there Thursday mm -hmm. so that they can run the cars Friday morning. Correct. But I figured that the stories will start coming out about Tuesday... But we'll really won't hear good news until Thursday as they're setting up and Friday morning when we get finally to free practice one. But just in case you missed it, I just want to give a summary of all clickbaity articles. Okay. You ready? Fernando Alonso is open to opportunities outside of Formula One. He just wants to win already. <laughs> the halo is unpopular and seatbelts were too at one time, says Sir Jackie Stewart. <laughs> And I know one of them is also one of your stories, so I won't steal your thunder there. And let's see. Mercedes is still winning the Constructors' Championship. Vettel is still ahead of Lewis. And everyone is shocked by the Lewis-Botas buddy friendship thing. Bromance. It's a bromance. Is it a bromance? They're saying it's a bromance. Mm. Even Nico um, Rosberg has come out and said that Botas is the best teammate for lewis so it's like oh, if that's the case you know it must be true i know D did he do this in front of his television set on the floor <laughs> and it's milk crates and it's milk crates yeah that was pretty sketchy i bet that that's like some man cave that vivian is like i'm not decorating that area you can just go put that ginormous tv someplace else <laughs> It probably destroys the aesthetic of her home. I'm sure of it. Um, that sums up all the clickbait that is on the interwebs. Okay. So McLaren gave us something to talk about. They did? And it wasn't an engine blowing up. <gasps> what did they do? McLaren has decided... That they know the next location at Formula One should be running cars. Okay, so pray tell. Where does McLaren think that Formula One should expand the franchise to today? Woking. Isn't that where their factory is? It is. So they don't want to have to ship anything. Are the well, engines that bad that they can't make it to a new location? Well, well, here's what they have to say. They had a lot to say about it. They, they put a lot of work into this proposal up to a point. <laughs> we'll get to that point in a minute. So they believe that a street race around some of the Surrey town's most famous and celebrated spots would raise Woking's profile to the point that it would enable it to join the ranks of both Monaco and Singapore as one of Formula One's most glamorous and iconic race locations. Because when I think of glamorous and iconic and fantastic cities that I would want to see races run through, Woking is right up there. Well, the thrust of their project, the whole plan here, is that they want to create a world-class Formula One venue, the Woking International Circuit. That says world-class, doesn't it? Well, it does, but it says that just the same way as the little podunked airport in some little bitty town that's also an international airport because it does one flight a day to uh, Bermuda, uh, not Bermuda, but to uh, the Bahamas. Fair enough. Now, the plan is that the circuit will link elements of the town's commercial, industrial, and residential set centers. Because you know the residentials, they're, they're going to love Formula One, cars, Formula One cars tearing through the neighborhood. Now, along those lines, and this is where I said they went to a point, McLaren has yet to formally present any of its plans to Woking Borough Council because it's a bit scared about how they might feel about the extensive and costly reprofiling of many roads and local landmarks that will be required. <laughs> so Jonathan Neal, 
Mm-hmm. He, he's uh, Chief Operating Officer of McLaren Technology Group, what he had to say. He said, why not? Why not bring Formula One to the streets of Woking? Obviously, aside from the huge social and financial commitment needed to set up the infrastructure, reprofile roads, relay tarmac, fit miles of Armco, build grandstands, pay for race hosting fees, and gain approval, and sign off from the FIA, we don't see any barriers to our vision. In an area that, in an era that's often seen as hemmed in by bureaucracy and narrow-mindedness, that's actually very refreshing. <laughs> Except for all of these barriers, we see no barriers. <laughs> you know, that reminds me, just absolutely wildly disconnected, but it reminds me of my freshman in college economics class where everything was assumptions. So we could create a perfect economy yeah. if we just assumed that nobody died and there was no taxes and governments didn't cost money. And then it was perfect. Keystone projects can be awesomely dreamy. It was phenomenal. And I, I that's the same thing. If we if we make assumptions that we can take all of these things out of the way, all of those things being the barriers to what it is you want to do, we can do anything. Do you know, you know, it is possible that the bloke in the bird show could have worldwide recognition if it wasn't for the fact that we were two people, you know, podcasting from our spare bedroom. Hey, you gotta and start somewhere. Maybe, you know, had no advertising budget. and no, I mean, think that through. We, we could host a Grand Prix if it wasn't for the fact that we had no power. I mean. Well, we have more here. Okay, We're keep going. We're not done yet. So, Zach Brown, Executive Director of McLaren Technology Group, he added, he had more to say here. He said it was Mika, and he's speaking of Mika Hakkinen. He said it was Mika who first raced a Formula One McLaren around the streets of Woking way back in 1998. When I say raced, he wasn't actually racing it. He was driving it, slowly, which was probably an even tougher test for Mika because he never drove anything slowly. Still, that event lit a spark that started a fire that turned into a dream that we converted into an idea to host a round of the Formula One World Championship on our doorstep in Woking. So their, their there submission... There no words. Their, their submission involves a number of, as they put it, new and innovative proposals, including hosting of the Formula One paddock on floatable pontoons that will be anchored in the Woking Basingstoke Canal, creating a unique waterside F1 village vibe. Instead of a single media center, journalists will be invited to work from local cafes, restaurants, and shopping centers, utilizing many of the town's uh, Wi-Fi hotspots. <laughs> Do they have to buy a cup of coffee in order to get the Wi-Fi password? Possibly. <laughs> so the circuit has been planned as an exciting high-speed 4.85-kilometer track that takes full advantage of the market town's winding streets and fast multi-carriageways. It has even been designed to pass two of McLaren's former factories on Boundary Road and Albert Drive to further drive home the links between the company and its hometown. Our engineers, our mechanics, our strategists have all actually driven the track, added Zach Brown. In fact, they've lived it, which actually gives them a head start over the rest of the field. They know every bump on the track, every ripple in the tarmac, every usable rush hour rat run, every decent takeaway restaurant within a five-mile radius of the start line. That's the sort of advantage you can't buy. Okay, so could we please propose that this Grand Prix include having the Formula One cars stop at the local Indian takeaway and have to buy a tiki masala to go? (laughs) Well, the plans also include a fun fair, a late night shopping experience, and a street market style food concession village. Well, naturally. (laughs) I mean, as one does in their pretend mythical world. Yeah. I mean, this is like a... April Fool's joke gone, like, wild. Well, it's a poorly timed April Fool's joke, clearly. That being said, one of the local uh, news and commentary websites for Woking actually went and picked up on the story and said, you know, hey, look, we know that this is a joke and, and, you know, again, badly timed April Fool's joke, but actually take a step back and think about it. This could be, we, we actually think the council should take this on. 
It would be a way to fix all the potholes. It would be a way to fix the to finish the construction projects that have been going on for all these years. If you time it right, it'll end up about the same time that they finish the renovations of the city green and all of these other things that, you know, if we did this, it could possibly push these projects along that we've been trying to make happen for all these years. So maybe we should actually do it. <laughs> 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 Maybe this crazy idea isn't so crazy after all. I don't think they went that far. But it's still pretty crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So then you have to ask yourself the massive question. So it's McLaren's backyard. Mm -hmm. McLaren is currently partnered with Honda. Mm -hmm. Honda has a habit of blowing up. <clears throat> Does that is that the image of woking that they want to portray to the world? of the native sun uh, factory that's right there in their town blows up in the middle of their city green. Well, you know, from that perspective, how is it all that different from um, Red Bull having terrible races every time they go to the Red Bull ring? Well, you know, maybe if they ever like got time on the red bull ring or maybe if we just admit that red bull's factory is still in england yeah, well. and they're not an austrian team okay there's that too <laughs> i mean i'm still partial to the fact that you know we consider mercedes a german team and their factories also in england but in a lot of those cases and it's not the case for red bull but in a lot of those cases it's a split operation right because there are elements of the F1 team that are in Germany. I think they're in Stuttgart off the top of my head. Probably Stuttgart. Or is that Porsche that's over there? I have no idea. But th there are parts of their organization that are in Germany. And there are several other teams that do something similar. It's only like Sauber and Ferrari that have absolutely no connection whatsoever to the British Motorsports Valley. Correct. But Red Bull has... Almost no connection to the Austrian Grand Prix. I think they might have like a uh, media person that works in an office somewhere around the racetrack. Helmet Marco's vacation home. That he never spends any time in. I don't know. Anyway. So speaking of vacations yes. and, and what folks did on their vacation, Charlie Whiting went to Buenos Aires. He went to Argentina. Oh, he did? Yeah. Did he stand on a balcony and sing Don't Cry For Me, Argentina? I don't know about that, but he did a what is called a quote-unquote informal visit oh. to the Buenos Aires circuit to evaluate the state of the facility. Um, it's mainly around the grade one certification for the circuit. Mm -hmm. The circuit has held that in the past, and as a matter of fact, it hosted... 20 races between 1953 and 1998, 20 Formula One races. So it, it has held the grade one certification. Uh, there was talk before Bernie was ousted that Argentina may return. Mm. So in theory, this is the, hey, just a reminder, we could host a race. We'd really like to do this. You know, let's find out what we need to make sure we're maintaining that certification and keep that certification. Yeah, makes sense. So... We don't know for sure if something is going to happen, but he was there to go check it out. Along the same lines, you know, we've, we've, what was it, last year that Charlie went and did a visit to Watkins Glen to talk about a potential uh, grade one certification for them, which they don't have? Yeah. So, yeah, don't read too much into this, <laughs> but it's where he, what he did for his vacation. Sounds like an exciting vacation, doesn't it? I'm going to go to the track and check out the safety equipment. <laughs> you know, to each their own. You know, some people we know go in uh, rubberneck fire stations on their vacations and, you know, naval and battleships. And supermarkets. Fair enough. So I think it's totally reasonable that maybe Charlie, safety equipment at uh, racetracks is a thing that he likes to vacation at. Um, you know, maybe he did have a whole, you know, Eva Patron moment while he was down in Argentina. Fair enough. Chase Carey's been talking about TV coverage. What does he have to say about TV coverage? Well, he came out and he said that 
um, the options that they have for coverage in the future has conflicting goals. Now, he didn't really dig in too deep as to what those conflicting goals were, but he did say that there are basically four different options that they're taking a look at, and, and they have to consider. There's the traditional free, which we mm -hmm. don't really get in the U.S., except for Monaco in Canada and maybe Austin. I don't know if Austin's going to be free. Okay. Um, but traditional free. Pay, which is NBCSN in the U.S., um, Sky in the U.K., Canada, I believe, is a pay model. Germany and France are all pay models. That's like paying for your cable service. Right. Then he says digital, which I think is more of an on-demand. Because then he, he goes on to say, and then potentially their own direct over-the-top model. And that's what I would have thought that digital would have been. And maybe digital is just YouTube and that kind of a thing. With over-the-top being an app access. Which, hmm. honestly... If done right, that's what we really want. I can I can understand that, but I can see where he's saying there's conflicting goals, because if you stop for a minute, even just looking at the first two models, mm -hmm. um, one of those the free model has the ability to be accessible to the population and gain fan base because it's free. People could hap upon uh, happenstance on it. Um, they can do that type of thing. A pay model that comes with your like cable packaging mm -hmm. and not a separate fee, but a cable packaging has that still same happenstance concept because people are universally buying a, a, a cable package. So that's kind of in line, I guess, with what he's saying here, that um, the economic premium, as he puts it, gets higher um, as you go up the ladder, but the problem is the reach becomes less. Right. You're not going to get to quite as many folks if you do it the other way around. But you could have better coverage or better experience for the folks that you have. And so that's a it's a delicate balance, and it's a teeter-totter to be sure. Yeah, I mean, and he says they're trying to figure out what the right mix of reach and direct economic value is. He says that there are impacts on their current partners, uh, but for sponsors, the fan engagement is very important. He says the goal is, and, and this I think is key. He says the goal is to maximize long-term growth, not to find a short-term prop. <laughs> Which I think is a, a massive direction shift for Formula One as uh, in the commercial rights side. Yeah, and it, well. And a slap at Bernie. At, at the very least, whether or not that was Birdie's intention or not, he gave the impression from the strategy he was taking was that it was always about the short-term dollar, not the long-term one. Mm -hmm. And that he was, no, he was no longer playing the long game. Now, to some extent, I can understand that. I mean, look at his age. But <laughs> I made that comment a long time ago that he became less and less risky as he got older. Moving on. Yes. If you're looking for a job in Formula One, it turns out that Force India is hiring, and they're not looking for drivers. What are they looking for? Because I'm willing to dust off my resume. Um, well, they're looking to go to grow by about 25 to 30 folks. Um, it looks to be more on the engineering side than on the marketing side. Oh, I don't have any experience in engineering. Sorry about that. Um, but he, they asked, um, this is Atmar, Sat, yeah, Atmar Safnauer, who's saying that they're not in a rush to get the folks, but it's more important for them to have the right people, which, yeah, that's the right strategy to take. You, you, you want to hire the right bodies. Um, but they think that at this point they're in a situation where for them to do better, they need more talent in place to make that happen and to do the development. They've pretty much hit where they can go. Are they sure they don't need, like, some marketing people? I don't know. You you could reach out to, to Otto and check. I could. But I also know that Renault is looking for people, too. They are. Uh, Cyril Abitbull uh, says that they are also looking to add additional staff. Now, they recently hired about 80 people just for this season, 
um, all engineering technical hours or, or technical areas. Um, he says that what they need to do now is not to have a similar growth, but growth that is compatible with the engineering potential. So now they're looking more towards the design office and in production uh, where they're almost too small and almost delaying what Arrow is capable of producing. And it's not just a matter of they need more bodies, but they've realized that they're now at a point that they need more space. Mm. Uh, they're not looking to move, but they are, they've, they're extending their building so that they can take on more people. And as a part of that, they're going to have a larger design office, um, like I said, because space is the big thing. Uh, they're also looking at some new works that they're going to be taking in, in uh, internally. They're going to be producing their own gearbox and composite next year, uh, but that also requires a lot of space and a lot of people dedicated to just that project. Wow. Interesting. You know, I mean, I'm just saying that I think we're no marketing team could use my expertise more than Force Indians. I don't know. They do have the AeroCat. I know, but the AeroCat needs adult supervision. Okay. Do you want an AeroCat running your marketing team? No, I just want an AeroCat. <laughs> I know that you have... Are you listening, Renault? I am still asking for an AeroCat. You're just upset because one of the pictures had somebody with two, two AeroCats, and you have none AeroCats. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um possibly as part of this there was a stretch through the, uh earlier this year that Renault basically paused their overall development process um they did that just to focus on what they needed to do for silverstone mm -hmm. um it was a fairly significant aerodynamic upgrade package that they did uh, involving good chunks of the car, but primarily Nico Hulkenberg's car and the floor for Nico's car. Um, but in order to do that and get all the resources they need, all the other development that needed that was going on had to stop. Oh, wow. Just to go and pull that off. That, I think, is a function of, A, having too small a team, but if you look at where they sit in the rankings, you know for a fact that, like, a Ferrari and a Mercedes are able to take whole teams and say, no, you need to focus mm -hmm. strictly on this. And yet the production of the the whole process, the car itself, doesn't have to stop. They don't have to stop and shut down. Right. They can take a team and say, okay, this is now your focus. Um, Renault's obviously got a team that can't do that. They have to shut that whole the advancement down across the board in order to make one advancement. And that's that's tough in the Formula One world because the truth is there's no truer statement than if you are not moving forward, you are going backwards. And in this case, all of that work paid off. I mean, the, the team was uh, on track for a top five finish up until Nico had an ERS problem, mm -hmm. which made him fall to six. But that would have been their first top five finish of the season. Mm -hmm. um, so what Cyril Abitbull said was they knew what they wanted to do, but they knew that it was a quite drastic change in the philosophy of the car and knew it was going to take a bit of time. Um, they had to, to a certain degree, pause the development because they needed this part. It was opening a new frame of development for the front of the car, the middle of the car with barge boards and also the rear of the car. Now that it is done, there is more to come, and that will happen over the remainder of the season. So we'll see where that takes them. Cool. So last week, and it was just last week that we talked about this, that Toro Rosso and Honda were having some conversations. Right. And there were a lot of different pieces that if this deal happened, there were a lot of different pieces that could then come into play and change the dynamics of the engine market. Because the theory was, if Toro Rosso got the Honda engine, that would now free up a Renault engine. McLaren's fed up with Honda, mm -hmm. but they have been told point blank that they're not getting a Mercedes engine and they're not getting a uh, Ferrari engine. That left Renault, but Renault wasn't and is not interested in taking on another team because of concerns that having to supply a fourth engine or a fourth set of engines to a team would impact what 
they're doing when it comes to reliability on the engines, and they've been struggling with that to begin with. So if Toro Rosso dropped the engine, that would free up a, a set of engines that Mercedes could take on, uh, thereby McLaren. not, or, or excuse me, that McLaren could take on, thereby not adding to the load on the Renault factory. Correct. That's not happening. No. Um, word is that talks fell apart over financial terms and that the potential for a deal is not happening. Uh, they reached a point where uh, Toro Rosso and Red Bull believed that uh, there was no turning back. They either needed to make a decision and commit to this in order to, to deal with the design because they didn't want to do what Renault did last year of try and shoehorn the Honda engine into a car that wasn't designed for a Honda engine. Um, they couldn't come up to, with financial terms, and now the deal is off. That was fast. Yeah. What I suspected the issue was is, um, if I remember correctly, Toro Rosso has another year, if not two years, left on their contract with Renault for engines. So if they were to dump Renault this year, there probably would have been penalties to go along with that. My theory is Toro Rosso went to Honda and said, if we're going to do this, you need to pay those pay the, those fees. And Honda said no. Mm. That's my theory. I don't know. Interesting. Well, I also know that from just reading reports, and I know this will not stun anyone. Again, this is a clickbaity uh, answer. Uh, Honda's looking for to be able to have two teams because they need to increase the data input. And that is a, a key problem that they're facing is they don't get enough data to be able to advance the engine. Yeah, you know, this is something that we actually talked about, what, two, three years ago when Honda first came in over the fact that come testing, Honda gets data points from one engine, Mercedes gets from four, Ferrari was getting at that point, I think, from two, and Renault was getting from three. Right. And... While, yes, it's great to be the exclusive works team and all the perks that come along with that, from a development standpoint, you are truly at a disadvantage. Right. And I think the only option at this point is if Honda wants another team, they're going to have to find a way to bring one in. I, I, you know, I, I can't see an existing Formula One team being willing to take the risk that Honda is and until Honda actually performs. And that's, that's the catch 22 right there. Mm -hmm. You don't have enough data to increase the, um, the engine to evolve the engine correctly. Therefore you can't perform. You can't get a second engine, a second manufacturer, second team until you have an evolved engine that doesn't blow up on the track. Their better option, whether it's bringing in another team entirely figure out how to do that process mm -hmm. or they have to make the deal so lucrative that they pick up another backmarker team that needs the money that badly. Yeah. And the fact that Sauber who needed the money and with, you know, the exit of Monisha probably doesn't need it as badly anymore, but they couldn't cut a deal with Sauber. They can't cut a deal with Toro Rosso tells me they're not coming to the table with enough incentive to take the risk. Well, and, and this is where I've got to wonder, um, if you're Honda, do you do one of two things? Do you decide that, you know what, if we're going to make this happen and we're truly committed to Formula One, that you cough up the money to start your own works team, which, you know, at that point you, you run a risk of irritating McLaren because McLaren is the works team, or do you turn around and you look to, say, Formula 2? Yeah, that's the that that's what GP2 became, is Formula 2, right? Correct. So you look to Formula 2, and you look to one of... There's two fairly strong teams there, uh, ABT and I think one other, who are believed to have the general infrastructure in place that they could step up to Formula One if they truly wanted to, do you look at one of those teams and say, you know what, we're going to underwrite you guys coming into Formula One if you'll do it? And, and that could be a methodology. I mean, 
there are teams that are there are people out there that are looking to field a team and to figure out how to do it with an engine that's expensive and let's not be honest mm-hmm. about it that expense that ex- engine is expensive but i think that the key here is that honda's not it is obvious and i'm not in the room and i don't have a seat at those tables but i can tell you just high level knowing what the finances look like honda is not coming to the table with enough money to get that second team well if I understand correctly, it's somewhere between forty to fifty million dollars that they're giving McLaren as the works team. Correct. In addition to the engines. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, you probably need twice that to to get a basic bare bones team off the ground. Well, I mean, and that's my point is I think that if you're going to try to attract another team that's willing to take the risk, and that's the key here, is you don't have a good track record. And your track record of when you were successful 10 years ago died last week. I mean, it's what have you done for me lately. That is the world of F1. It, it's that, and it's also how deep your pockets are. If, mm-hmm. if you look at the budget of Mercedes... And that enterprise, it's estimated to be in the area of $400 million a year. And Ferraris is also pretty dang close to it. How many companies want to pour in $400 million a year for... A giant risk. A, a giant risk, but they're going to need to do it for several years before they start to see it pay off. Because that's not an instant investment. It was, what, four years for Mercedes to... to turned the team into what it is now and truly where they where it happened and how it happened was there was a change in the engines and a change in the rules that they were able to leverage that nobody else did because they started eight years before the changes Mm -hmm. because they put 400 million dollars into their investment which allows them to carve out some small piece of their their team can be constantly looking forward to future rules changes yeah i i assure you that ferrari and mercedes today have bodies on their team that are looking forward to what will be the the proposed concepts of the engine that might come out in 2020 and how to influence and how to how to influence them but you know it's it's that game of if they do X, we can address it with Y. If they do Q, we are going to do P. And that's what that that corner of the team is sitting in a locked office somewhere going, okay, well, if they come out with this kind of engine, this is the development cycle that we will go. And if they come out with this, so that the second, the 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 weights, the, mm-hmm. the balance goes, okay, we're looking at a hybrid engine and it's going to be this kind of a thing. They can go, okay, we're ready. We can start working on that because they've got the planning system. I assure you there is not a single person at Sauber that can be spared to think like that because the team budget doesn't allow for it. Yeah, but and to some extent also Sauber doesn't have to. Right. Well, Sauber has to worry about aero. They don't need to necessarily worry about engine. But, yeah, your your point is still valid. They, they do not have the Blue Sky group. They, they probably do not have the Blue Sky group who's, who can look three to five years in the future and figure out contingencies and direction to go there. Exactly. That's my whole point. Okay. Renault probably, and they're building engines, probably does not have as large a group working on what that next engine is going to look like. But they're working on it. They are likely should be thinking about it. Mm-hmm. But they're not got, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Mercedes isn't prototyping out what some of the different options could be. Because that's what they did with this hybrid engine. Yeah. That's how they were truly four years ahead of everybody else. Well, speaking of Mercedes. Yes. If you'll recall, Monaco was not a great race for them. No. Well, they, they said it, it was, as many people may frame it, a teachable moment. Ooh. Um, James Allen, um, who he was actually following up on some comments that Toto Wolf had, had made towards the beginning of the season, as Toto was describing 
the challenges that, that they have had with this year's car. He described uh, the car as a diva. Well, mm-hmm. James Allen has explained what Monaco actually did for them now. Or not James Allen, James Allison. Okay. Different people. Completely different people. Yeah. James Allison, you know, technical director of the team as opposed to James Allen reporter. Right. Very different. Uh, James Allison said that um, actually it was a circuit where very few of the good parts of the car were on display and most of the uglier ones were. <laughs> That's how he put it. He said it was really helpful to us in that regard because it focused our minds on where the issues were. It was very, very beneficial. Prior to Monaco, we had won a few races. We had been on pole in all but one of them. We clearly had a quick car, and you can flatter yourself that this is all going to be fine, but it was really helpful for us to see that the problems we had needed to be dealt with, that we had needed to be dealt with, because we didn't like the experience of Monaco. But also the purity of which they were presented to us in Monaco also made it correspondingly much easier to diagnose what were the bigger factors and how to go about attacking them. So it was helpful in two ways, as a spur and as a diagnostic. Um, he said that the biggest step Mercedes made in response to Monaco was their understanding of the car rather than any new parts. He said, from after Monaco, we haven't really had a weak race so far. After that, And that race after Monaco was Canada, and we didn't bring any upgrades there. So we'll see what happens. I, I think really the, the telling point as to whether or not they've learned what the issues were and been able to address them is going to be Singapore. I think that'll be the the key because that's the second – that's such a track that is so similar and has had historic issues for Mercedes mm-hmm. that Monaco and Singapore are kind of like cousins that way. So over on the driver front. Yes. Talking about Sauber, Marcus Erickson wants out. He says he wants to be in a more competitive car as soon as possible. And, oh, by the way, he's not under contract. His contract is up this year, so he is looking for a race seat. I wonder how that's going to work out for Mr. Erickson. He says that he is in a strong position in the team. Um, He says, you know, I've been here quite a few years now, so it's a good environment for me. But I want, as a driver, to be in a more competitive car as soon as possible. Hopefully this year we will continue to make progress and be stronger. Then for me, I have no contract for next year. I'm not sure what's happening for me in the future. It's difficult to show what I can do when I've been in one of the slowest cars, sort of all throughout my F1 career. Okay. That's where I think the problem is. He says, it's difficult to show your potential to impress the bigger teams with your ability. But somehow um, Esteban Ocon's been able to pull that off. Mm-hmm. Somehow Pascal Verlein's been able to pull that off. You know, a lot of drivers get their start at the back of the grid running in these back marker teams. That's how Daniel Ricciardo got started. He started in an HRT and then got himself a seat over at Toro Rosso. So I, I think it's a bit disingenuous here for him to turn around and say, well, I'm a much better driver than the car lets me show off. I think it would be more a matter of you're doing better despite the shortcomings of the car. Well, you even have to look at uh, two-time world champion Fernando Alonso. Mm-hmm. He doesn't always have the fastest car on the grid. See, now Never. McLaren Honda. Um, and he overperforms that car, and that gets him the accolades for not just being a two-time world champion, but being a very good driver. Um, outdriving your car is the key to moving into better and better teams. Outdriving your car is part of it. Beating your teammate is the other. True. And Pascal Verlein has been out-qualifying Marcus quite a bit. And, and Marcus admits that uh, Pascal is able to, to string together, when it counts in qualifying, he's able to string together good laps, and he's doing it more frequently than Marcus is. But then Marcus says that, well, you know, in the races, we're close. He's still behind his teammate. But they're close. That's what he says. We're close, and, and you know, that, that should be enough. And 
yet Marcus, no, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, I'm right. sorry, man. Yeah. The math is not with you on that. Yeah. So. Do we have any other silly season driver news yet? Well, Christian Horner says that Max Verstappen will not be tempted by Mercedes or Ferrari. Oh, so he's got him locked in a, a basement now. Possibly. You may not go outside. You may not talk to other people. <laughs> he, potentially he has um, hacked into Max's uh, iPhone and keeps deleting Toto Wolf as a contact. Because we know Toto is in Max's contact list. Correct. We have seen this in the past. Maybe Christian keeps going in and, and deleting them. That is possible. Possibly on both sides. <laughs> yeah. Toto, you can't call him. <laughs> I don't know. We shall see. We know Max is not particularly happy. Yeah. Um, since he seems to have gotten the lion's share of the bad luck at the team. But we'll see. See, I think that what's happening is Christian Horner is working harder to make sure that Toto and um, uh, whatever his face is over at Ferrari, Riva Bene, can't pass him notes in the pit lane. You know, because you know <laughs> that like it's like high school. They're they're like walking over to his car and kind of throwing a note inside yeah, that says, "You're safe. We'll we'll take care of you. We can get you out." <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I would call it an abusive relationship. I mean, that, I mean, you never know. I mean, Christian's come out and said that nobody can talk to Max. Max will not go anywhere. I'm telling you, I think he's locked in the basement somewhere. Well, you know, that's the question is knowing what they have there with Carlos Sainz. How do you, I mean, that's a bad situation that you've got to deal with. You've got a driver that, you're afraid to let him go because he shows talent. Mm -hmm. But he wants bigger and better, and you can't give it to him. Right. How do you deal with that? Well, one of the ways you deal with it is that you claim that you can outscore Ferrari for the rest of the season. And That is, and that's what Christian Horner says, is that they believe, or at least their target is to outscore Ferrari for the last half of the season. To which Toto Wolf is saying, you go. <laughs> <laughs> you go right ahead. <laughs> I am all for that. You guys, you're yeah, go for it. Duke it out. <laughs> Keep that fight down between second and third. Yeah, we'll we'll see how that happens. Um different area to talk about for car development. So we talked earlier this season uh, around Barcelona about the two-seater car. Yeah. It's coming back. Um, they're working to do a bit more with it. This year, it was in, I think, well, all they say is it's a limited program. But the plan is that they're going to feature it in all 21 races next year. Now, in order to do that, they need to do some work. Um, Liberty has embraced the program. Uh the car was referred to initially as the Minardi two-seater uh, because the cars ran in that team's colors before uh, the team sold out to Red Bull. And at its heart, the design is actually still a 1998 Tyrrell as raced by Toro Takagagi and Ricardo Rossett in the team's last season. Okay. So this is an old car. Um, Mike Gascoigne, who formerly worked for Caterham, he has been called upon to redesign and redevelop the car. Um, one of the things about Mike is that he, A, helped develop the car when it, when they first rolled it out. He's like one of the only people left available with design experience who's also driven the car. Oh. So what their plans for it, some of their plans are, is that they're going to put a more modern aero package on it. So a new front wing, barge boards, and rear wing to reflect the current regulations. They're going to make two new chassis because they want to incorporate changes to improve driver fit and get bigger passengers in and make them feel more comfortable and safer. They're going to put new electronics on because they're probably the weak link from a reliability point of view. These are electronics that, that are currently in the cars that are like 20 years old. Yeah. So they can't get replacements. So they're doing new stuff. But they also can put in dash displays for the passengers so that they'll be able to see where they are in the circuit. 
the other thing that they've recognized is that one of the downsides of the two-seater in its current configuration is that the passenger faces the back of the driver's roll hoop, so the vision is restricted. So they intend to address that. Um, he says that uh, the chassis were done before you had huge composite stress analysis capability and all that sort of thing. They were kind of done with hand calculations. So they're now able to retrospectively go back, do all of that work, and look at the areas that they can trim things down and adjust. He says they don't need to take weight out of it or anything. What they're looking to do is improve the experience for the passengers, what they can see, what displays are available to them, and comfort. For the passengers, you don't need to do more than two or three laps in the current cars before it's quite uncomfortable, he says. He says we'll improve all of that for the passengers and get modern cameras in there so you've got a record. He says if they're going to run at 21 races next year, for them as a team logistically, it's a very big challenge. They've got to sort out logistics because the way this car, the way the program works is any time that they get a hole that may be like a five-minute long hole, they try and slip the car in. Mm. Well, if the car doesn't run, you can either foul up the, the schedules or, you know, you, you're disappointing somebody. He says they do much less mileage than the F1 cars, but they don't have long life engines. They don't have long life gearboxes. And in terms of maintaining all the parts and lifing everything, it's a challenge in itself. He says it's not a technical challenge in terms of producing a competitive car, but you do have to produce a safe racing car that's going to run for four days at every Grand Prix. If you have a five-minute slot to put two VIPs in it, it doesn't look very good if the engine doesn't start or if it breaks down. The looks of the car may change, but underneath, this is still going to be a 1998 Terrell. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I thought it was kind of interesting what they're looking to do and achieve with this. Um, they've changed – well, actually, I don't know how much they have changed it. We think they have changed over an IndyCar, their two-seater, quite a bit. Um, we saw this year that it was more than just one two-seater car that was running around. There were about three of them. And the morning of the race, they were running – uh, tag team hot laps yeah. between the two seater Indy car and the cars that are used by the racing the, by the racing school down at, at Mid Ohio, which are Acuras. Yeah, um, but we weren't there early enough last year to see whether or not that was happening too. That was the advantage of having our own private campground. But we didn't get to ride in the car yet. No, we, we just got to watch because that was also that. done right outside of our windows. It was. <laughs> And speaking of IndyCar. Yes. So back at the Indy 500, qualifying at the Indy 500, Sebastian Bourdais had a massive wreck. Fire. I mean, it was a, it was a head-on collision into the wall at IndyCar. Um, we had joked after the Indianapolis 500 about how Sebastian had said he was determined to get back in the car, and Dale Coyne said... Uh, yet no um <laughs> you're not coming back for the rest of the season and and he said his goal was to be back in the car for sonoma and even his wife was like no take the rest of the year out esteban gutierrez got the seat in the meantime sebastian bourdais this past week was cleared to race again oh my word well he knows his body better than anybody else does apparently yeah wow so we'll see what happens. I don't know if he's going to be um, actually running this year, but at least medically, he has been cleared to get back into the car. Very interesting. Well, congratulations. I'm glad he's doing so much better. And you said you had something. I do. Okay. I do. Um, I have the last in our roundup of stories that shouldn't be stories, but are stories because we're in a break. Do, do I need to pull out the we can't believe that you got paid to publish this music? No. Oh, okay. No. Um, possibly the what did you learn today music might be appropriate. Okay. So we are ready with JoJo. <laughs> You 
you cannot believe everything you read on social media. No. I know. So apparently there is a Sebastian Vettel fan group out there. Well, of course. That somebody has found a photograph of someone vaguely looking like Lewis Hamilton pouring a bottle of liquor and having in his mouth an unlit cigar in his bathrobe into a gold Maserati claiming that this is Lewis Hamilton not remembering the children um, and not being a good role model. Now, it took some serious... Yeah. <laughs> okay, let me back up. A Sebastian Vettel fan group was trash-talking Lewis because they felt that his statement of remember the children and being a role model for the children was so important and so they have located this picture that they claim is Lewis Hamilton pouring a bottle of booze into the gas tank of a gold Maserati wearing a white bathrobe and having in his mouth an unlit cigar. Okay. Now, it took a serious amount of super sleuthing, obviously, about three or four whole seconds on the interwebs <laughs> to find out that A... This was not Lewis Hamilton. Um, it was not Lewis Hamilton. It was, in fact, some rapper I have never heard of, but that doesn't mean that he's not a popular rapper, but it is some rapper um, that, if you squint your eyes and tilt your head just right, might vaguely look like Lewis Hamilton, except for some key points. He does not have the neck tattoo that Lewis Hamilton has. Okay. He has a thicker chin strap beard than Lewis Hamilton has. I think Lewis has shaved that. He may have shaved it, but this is that stereotype. He, he, in the picture, there is a thicker chin strap type beard. Okay. Um, and he's a completely different color than Lewis Hamilton. Is. Well, that would do it too. Yeah. Mm. Um. So if you for if you happen to come across a picture of some random guy pouring booze into a gold Maserati, it is not Lewis Hamilton, despite the Sebastian Vettel fans out there going, you're supposed to be for the children. So I learned, do not believe all that you read in social media. Alrighty then. <laughs> well, on that note, we will continue our countdown to spa. Countdown to spa! In the end of the summer break. But in the meantime, we'll call it a show. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> Okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is there is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. <laughs> a little break? Okay. Whew.